Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. Look, um, we have a lot of ground to cover, and the last thing I wanted to do was to write another newsletter about Donald Trump. I hated to write it. I know you hate to read it. And yet we had this extraordinary moment yesterday. Somebody described it as a quantum Trump, where he says something that's completely predictable and yet still incredibly outrageous. This is the former president of the United States sitting down with a far right, what is a website, TV station. He's being interviewed by a discredited former reporter and reaches out to Vladimir Putin in the midst of a war. I mean, obviously the context is important here. This is taking place while Vladimir Putin is committing war crimes in Ukraine while he is engaged in the savage aggression against a sovereign state. And here is Donald Trump asking for Vladimir Putin's help. As long as Putin now is not exactly a fan of our country. Our country. Let him explain where did, because Chris Wallace wouldn't let me ask the question, why did the mayor of Moscow's wife give the Bidens, both of them, Three and a half million dollars. That's a lot of money. She gave him three and a half million dollars. So now I would think Putin would know the answer to that. I think he should release it. I think we should know that answer. Really? So uh, joining me on our podcast today, Adam White comes back to the podcast, senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, co-executive director of the Center for the Study of the Administrative State at the Antonin Scalia Law School at George Mason University, also uh, a contributor to The Bulwark. Uh, Welcome back, Adam. I appreciate it. Thanks, Charlie. Great to be back. Okay, look, I feel like we've said this a million times, but Trump's comments yesterday, and by the way, this is not taken out of context. This is not gotcha. His own spokesman actually tweeted this out. Exclusive Trump calls on Putin to release info on Hunter Biden's dealings with oligarchs. It feels like he's recapitulating all of his biggest scandals from Russia, if you're listening, with Hillary's emails, to I would like you to do us a favor when he tried to extort Vladimir Vladimir, uh, Zelensky uh, to dig up dirt on the Bidens and yet multiplied by a factor of genocide. So, you know, again, Donald Trump pushing the limits of the unimaginable. And I admit words fail me because it's Lent and I can't actually call him a traitorous motherfucker, but I would otherwise. (laughs) Well, usually the reruns of his TV shows were more boring. He somehow found a way to make this one even worse than in the past. And and like you, I was really stunned when he not only says the quiet parts out loud, but he says the unspeakable part out loud, right? The fact that he says, because Putin doesn't like our country, exactly. maybe Putin will do me a favor. Uh, that that the, the, his, his words, our country, and that Putin doesn't like it, was just shocking that Trump would actually say that out loud, except nothing shocking anymore. Okay. So th- this, I think, is the key thing. Some people have left that part out of all of this, but I think that that's kind of the smoking gun because he explicitly frames his request to Putin as an act of retaliation, not just against Biden, but against the United States itself. It's like, well, Putin is not exactly a fan of our country. This is the former and perhaps future president of the United States at a time of international conflict reaching out to Vladimir Putin. And look, spoiler alert, my guess is that outside of the small redoubt of Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger, zero Republican members of Congress will speak out against this. 
None of them will say, okay, I'm sorry, that is just fundamentally wrong that you are still trying to collude with Vladimir Putin. There'll be zero blowback from the GOP. What do you think? Well, I, I, I hope you're wrong. I think I you're probably I right. I think you're probably right, which is, which is, which is unfortunate. The interesting thing about this is usually when Trump was president would say crazy things every day, people would say, well, I, I don't pay attention to his tweets. I just focus on his policies. Here, he's once again saying something, not just for the sake of saying something, but for actually affecting things in the real world, trying to, you know, and this will never, I don't believe it'll actually play out the way he hopes, but actually trying to goad a foreign leader, the most consequential foreign dictator on the world scene right now, to, to, change what he's doing, take a little time out from the, 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 the pillaging of Ukraine to send Trump some files that he would, he would like to see. So it's not just Trump running his mouth, it's running his mouth to actually have real impact in the world. It's a reminder once again that you can't just simply separate what Trump says from what is, say, policy or just the impacts of the real world. They're always, always bound up with one another. Yeah, if you'll indulge me for a moment, I went off on a little rant on my morning shots this morning. I want Republicans to defend this. I mean, go ahead, you know, try, try to defend it. Don't dodge or hedge. Defend your leader's partnership in slime and blood with Vladimir Putin. I want to, I want to hear again, tell me again that he's learned his lesson, Susan Collins. I mean, explain again, you think that the whole Russia thing was a hoax and, and justify putting this defeated, disgraced, twice impeached, deplorable, back in the Oval Office and make the case for giving the nuclear codes back to this scabrous traitor. I, I mean, I, I want to hear them make that point. But, you know, OK, there's a lot I want to get to, Adam, but this also seems to just dovetail of all of the stories we are learning about how serious the attempts to overturn the election were. So, look, treason has a very specific word in the Constitution. I get this. So, you know, perhaps we should say, you know, treason adjacent. But what we're learning about the coup, what we're reading about what Ted Cruz was willing to do, what what, uh, John Eastman was prepared to do, all of this which is coming out, some of which we knew, much of it we don't know. We don't know what that seven and a half hour gap in the phone calls means. But just give me your thoughts on all of this, because it does feel that we're sort of in a cascade of information about January 6th again. Well, when you said a moment ago that you know Trump hasn't learned his lessons, per, per Susan Collins' famous quote, uh, he certainly is learning his lessons. He's learning the lesson that he can go ahead and keep doing these things and saying these things without any real pushback from the institutions of conservatism or the Republican Party. And I think these two new news developments that came out, the California federal court decision involving John Eastman and this long Washington Post account of Senator Ted Cruz's actions in the run-up to the January 6th insurrection, they were both pretty stark reminders of what people in Trump's orbit are willing to do and what they're not willing to do. And, and what they're willing to do is obvious. I mean, that's, that's the story in, in both of those stories. I think it's important to focus on what they're not willing to do. They're not willing to tell the president no. And for me, in the, the, this Washington Post story about Ted Cruz, the most telling remark in the whole thing is when President Trump approached Senator Cruz and asked Cruz if he would argue this long shot, ridiculous case filed by a bunch of states to try to stop, I think it was the Pennsylvania um, mm-hmm. electoral process. And Senator Cruz's response to Trump in the story was, if the Supreme Court takes the case, then yes, I'll argue it. And it's just the perfect lawyerly evasion 
of reality. What, what Cruz was telling Trump is, yeah, sure, I'll take your case, but the hedge is if the Supreme Court agrees to hear it, which is to say, maybe the Supreme Court will stop us from actually trying to do these ridiculous things. But if the Supreme Court doesn't stop us by, by, and it agrees to hear the case, then I'm in with you, right? And once over and over again, you saw Republicans in politics hope that other institutions, especially the courts, uh, would step in and be the grownups in the room so that the, the politicians around President Trump wouldn't have to tell him no themselves. So let's talk a little bit about this uh, this federal court ruling, this uh, federal judge uh, Carter, um, you know, ordering John Eastman to turn over some documents to the January 6th committee. Uh, the language of his decisions gotten a lot of, of attention. He he uh, he wrote uh, based on the evidence, the court finds it more likely than not that President Trump corruptly attempted to obstruct the joint session of Congress on January 6th. He wrote. Their campaign, meaning Trump and Eastman's campaign, was not confined to the ivory tower. It was a coup in search of a legal theory. But then he also pointed out this is not a criminal prosecution. This is not even a civil liability suit at most. This case is a warning about the dangers of legal theories gone wrong, the powerful abusing public platforms and uh, desperation to win at all costs. So Give me your sense of, of the significance of that and whether or not it, it does in the legal world put more pressure on Merrick Garland to do something. Well, it's significant anytime a federal judge would would say this sort of thing about our former president in a legal opinion. Let's let's have some caveats here. It's just one federal trial judge. Right. It's on a procedural order involving the production of documents. And and just for the sake of the listeners who haven't focused on this case closely yet. This all arises from attempts of, I think it was the January 6th committee, to subpoena records from John Eastman, the president's legal advisor and a former law professor out of Chapman. Eastman is trying to block the Chapman University's release of these emails. He claims a number of privileges, including attorney-client privilege. And so a lot of this 40-something page opinion dives down into the weeds of privilege and what counts as a privileged document or not. But the thing about the crimes that President Trump committed, that comes up in, in an aspect of privilege where the government says Eastman can't block the release of these documents, even if there was attorney-client privilege attached, because this was all advice given pursuant to the commission of a crime, which is to say that it's not just that President Trump may have broken the laws, it's that President Trump also knew that he was probably breaking the laws, and, and Eastman as well probably knew that they were breaking the laws by trying to conjure up a course of events, not just speech and not just legal theories, but actually conjuring up a course of events that would, in the end, interfere with the official government process of counting the electoral votes. So that's a long way of putting what the context of this is. And so then in that part of the opinion, the judge says, yes, it's clear President Trump, more likely than not, broke the law. It's clear that he knew that what he was trying to do had no genuine good faith basis in law. And then he even quotes John Eastman's statement saying Eastman himself knew that they were crossing lines beyond anything that had been previously allowed by a statute or by tradition. Okay, so I want to talk to you about Ginny Thomas, Clarence Thomas, and the upcoming confirmation vote for KBJ. But let's do it after this. So let's talk about how you can save some money. Whether you're interested in saving money on your mortgage or you're looking to access some cash, you should definitely consider American financing, America's home for home loans, where the process starts with a free, no-obligation mortgage review so you can learn about custom loan options that may be a better fit for you. 
from lower rates to shorter terms, even paying off high interest debt. Their salary-based mortgage consultants can do it all, and they never charge upfront or hidden fees. And I'm telling you, it's possible to save up to $1,000 a month with these guys, plus tens of thousands long-term. Think of the difference that can make. Then pick up the phone to learn more. If you start soon, you can skip two payments and make close in as fast as 10 days. Call 888-991-9788. That's 888-991-9788. Or visit AmericanFinancing.net and tell them that Charlie sent you. NMLS 182334, NMLSConsumerAccess.org. Okay, we are back with Adam White. So, Adam, you have had an evolving opinion about the criticism of Ginny Thomas. Is that, uh, is that fair to say? Well, I've had an evolving opinion of what this means for Justice Thomas maybe having to recuse in future cases. And I, and I, I made a, a statement to that effect when I was interviewed by the Washington Post last week. To spell it out, uh, yeah. Justice Thomas, obviously he's faced a lot of criticism over the years, and I've long defended him against those, and I think he deserves those defenses. And, and furthermore, you've seen in recent years calls for Justice Thomas to recuse from cases because his wife, Virginia Ginny Thomas, uh, is a political activist and often is an activist on some of those issues. I've always thought those recusal accusations were overstated too, because recusal, I mean, it's a hazy standard and, and the Supreme Court justices themselves are not even directly governed by that standard of recusal, which is an issue I explored when I was on yeah. the Presidential Commission on the Supreme Court. So just saying, well, Jeannie Thomas is a political activist, Justice Thomas shouldn't hear those cases, that's not good enough. But what's different about these recent revelations, these text messages with uh, Mark Meadows, is that we now see Mrs. Thomas directly involved in discussions and strategy with the White House in the course of events that gave rise to the January 6th insurrection. And so when I was asked about this by the Post, I said, this is different and it could give rise to much more concrete and compelling recusal requests in the future, depending on what the specific cases are and mm -hmm. depending on what Justice Thomas knew and when he knew it. But above all, the basic standard for recusal is not just when there's a, a concrete conflict, but when there's a reasonable appearance of a conflict of interest. And, and I think that Justice Thomas now increasingly finds himself in that zone for cases involving January 6th. I think that's a legitimate distinction that you're making there. I mean, simply because a spouse is politically active might not trigger um, legitimate recusals. But now that we're finding out that she was involved in, as you put it, a specific course of events that did give rise to specific Supreme Court litigation, obviously that changes the formula here. Because, look, I, I want to say this again for people who are thinking about possible impeachment or resignation. None of that is going to happen. The only real response to this, I think, at this point, and you correct me if I'm wrong, is recusal and Frankly, no one can force Clarence Thomas to recuse. I mean, is that a fair reading that with the Supreme Court, there is no rule, there is nobody that can say, I'm sorry, we think you should sit this case out. That's really totally and solely up to him. Yeah, that's right. In the end, it is. It's different for the lower court judges. And, and I'd add one more thing. I don't quite yet know how to think about recusal in general for the justices. I thought about a lot through the court commission, but we should keep in mind the justices were appointed by presidents and confirmed by the Senate to decide cases. And there's only nine justices. So recusal is a very weighty matter. I mean, taking one of nine justices out of a case can be hugely consequential. Of course, 
the court needs to maintain its legitimacy, not just in cases of actual conflict, but the appearance of conflict. And so it is something I worry about. Now, I hope I don't disappoint. I don't have any real concrete advice for what happens next because I don't know what the next cases will be. We won't know how closely they pertain to Ginny Thomas's text messages with Mark Meadows. And we should keep in mind, I mean, who knows how many people were texting Mark Meadows and we don't know how seriously he was actually taking her advice. I mean, nobody knows anything yet. But like I said, this is just qualitatively different from past calls for recusal for Justice Thomas. And and so when I was asked about this by the Post, you know, I pointed this out because I think it's something that that supporters of Justice Thomas, and I count myself among them, uh, really need to take seriously. Okay, so you mentioned uh, that you were on the Supreme Court Commission, the Presidential Commission, to examine the future of the court, whether the court should be expanded. The work of that commission is finished. Am I right about that? That's right. Okay, um, and 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 ultimately, uh, it, it did not recommend expanding the the court. So, just talk to me a little bit briefly about your your thoughts about the future of the court. Uh, there were suggestions about term limits, about age limits. Where did you come down on what needs to be done to strengthen the court or to uh, shore up its legitimacy? That last word is really key, Charlie, and I'm glad yeah. you brought it up. My big takeaway from serving on that commission for a year. You know, I entered the commission a critic of court packing or court expansion, and, and nothing on the commission changed my mind. I, I entered the commission kind of open-minded to, the, at least in theory, putting uh, uh, term limits on the justices. They currently serve basically for life, um, kind of like a prison sentence. But um, I, I came away thinking that actually wasn't a good idea because it would change the court and it also would change the appointment process. And we don't need to necessarily get in the weeds on that. But over and over again through through my commission work, both within the commission and and in my public questions during our hearings and my public statements afterwards, over and over again, I tried to return my colleagues and the public back to the question of what is it that we think the court is here to do, right? It's like that line from mm-hmm. uh, Office Space. What is it that you do around here? Uh, <laughs> you know, what, the question is, why do we have a court? What distinguishes it from the executive and legislative branch? Uh, and what do we need to preserve about that? And the, in the end, the job of the court is to be independent and neutral, deciding cases based on laws that the justices themselves generally don't write, and based on the facts as they actually are, and not just sort of conjured up by our wishes. But above all, as I'd say a lot of the reforms that were proposed for the court, including court packing, I thought would, would further delegitimize the court. And the court is now already facing criticism about its legitimacy from the left, and it's faced that criticism from the right in the past. And right before the the confirmation hearings for Judge Jackson, I wrote an op-ed in the Uh, Wall Street Journal. I I have it right here and wanted to ask you about that. Well, yeah, on legitimacy. And maybe if you want to ask about the op-ed, we can focus on that. But I just want to say, when I answered the Post's question about Justice Thomas and recusal, it really was with my now, you know, years-long concerns about legitimacy in mind. And it's important to push back, not just against uh, efforts on what I see as the left to delegitimize the court. But we need to push back on when things take a bad turn on the right as well. Well, you, you in this Wall Street Journal piece, you wrote about the current attacks on the court's legitimacy. And then they have several roots. Some mm-hmm. people are upset about the election year confirmation of Amy Coney Barrett after the silent treatment that Merrick Garland uh, got uh, four years ago. Others 
raise questions um, because of the court's rulings on elections and voting rights, saying, you know, this makes them look excessively partisan. Others say the court doesn't reflect America's political opinions or demographics. So this is what you wrote. It's remarkable to see how little the court's loudest critics even attempt to anchor their attacks to our basic constitutional principles. They attempt to delegitimize the court for failing to act like a legislature. They accuse it of being insufficiently representative and promoting the wrong policies. So talk to me about that. Well, it's a big question. <laughs> um, and I just want to say, when I hear that, that quote from there, um, I, I will say, you know, I'm not against diversity on the court. In fact, I, I'm all for it. And that includes not just racial diversity. And of course, that came up with President Biden's pledge for this nominee, but also di- diversity in background, diversity in geography, all those things. It's good for Americans to be able to identify with members of the court, you know, to some extent. But I am worried about the attacks on the court. We've seen it from Senator Warren, Senator Whitehouse, and others arguing that the court is taking a wrong turn on voting rights cases or on Second Amendment cases. And those are all issues we can disagree with. And And I have I basically agree with where the court's been lately, but, but not necessarily 100% on those issues. But when you take a disagreement with the court and you take it to the level of questions of the court's legitimacy... That's a huge step up. And I think the court's legitimacy hinges both on what the justices do, but also on what the court's critics do. And in my op-ed was an attempt to take seriously both thinking hard about the job of the court and also the job of the, of the critics and not just have the court's legitimacy hinge on like a heckler's veto of I don't like what the court's doing, therefore the court is illegitimate. What the court needs to do is take cases carefully, deliberate on them collegially, decide them transparently with written opinions. I've been a little bit wary of the so-called shadow docket where the court issues procedural decisions without full briefing or argument or even sometimes without a full decision. I think the court needs to do more to make its opinions more transparent and, and more approachable. But I do worry when debates about legitimacy start to hinge on the outcome of particular cases. I think that really misunderstands the role of the court and also the role of the critic. Well, what is the role of the confirmation process in undermining the legitimacy of the court? And, and, and I'm thinking mm-hmm. of the last two uh, high-profile hearings, Brett Kavanaugh and KBJ. Um, let's yeah. talk about uh, Jackson. The Republicans on that committee could have spent their time talking about uh, judicial philosophy, um, jurisprudence, but you had a lot of performative questioning. I called it performative assholery that made no attempt. People like Ted Cruz made no attempt to actually link the racist baby books from this one school to actual cases before the court. And in many ways, you know, a person, a non-lawyer sitting and watching those hearings would have thought that the court was purely ideological because many of the issues that they talked about really are not the kind of things that we would expect and want from a Supreme Court. And of course, we know what a Kavanaugh hearing has devolved into. So, I mean, to what extent has the the entire confirmation process made the court into look like it is simply a, a, a partisan uh, back and forth? You know, Justice Scalia got a lot of things right over the years, and, and here's one of them. In one of his most famous dissents, uh, he warned his colleagues, this is in the early 90s, that if their constitutional decisions continue to look more and more like policy arguments, well, then the Supreme Court confirmation hearings, which were already being roiled up, this is in the immediate aftermath of Bork and Thomas, 
Uh, Scalia says it's going to get even worse, and it's going to descend into a bunch of policy arguments because if the American people and the senators think that the court is just in the policy business, well, then that's what the confirmation hearings will be a discussion of. Now, I don't want to excuse the the excess of Senator Cruz and Hawley. I thought that their tone and, and a lot of the substance crossed a lot of lines. But I'd say that there's a number of sources for the problems in the current confirmation hearings. What good can they do? Well, there are limits, of course. And I think Justice Judge Jackson, future Justice Jackson, really perfected this two-step maneuver where every time a nominee is asked about a legal question, the nominee says, well, I can't answer that because it might come before the court. Right. And then when they're asked a policy question, they say, well, I can't answer that because I'm a judge, not a policymaker. Well, if you can't talk about legal policy, you can't talk about non-legal policy, what's left. And what's left is basically temperament. And I think the confirmation hearings at their best is an opportunity to ask the nominee how they reached previous decisions, what was their thought process, probe them a little bit on that. And you get to see a how they how they think and and, and sort of what their instincts are. There's an alternative universe where you could have actually had a productive and a good conversation about her sentencing decisions. The Congress has given these judges a lot of discretion over sentencing. The judges use their discretion in ways that I don't necessarily agree with. And you could actually have a really good and useful conversation that would exemplify the role of the Senate in, in, in ensuring that the president nominates good people. But we saw, as with so much in our politics today, we saw like the, the, the bizarro, awful version of that conversation. Well, okay, I, I am old enough to remember when even very liberal or very conservative nominees were confirmed on huge bipartisan votes, 98 to nothing or 99 to, to nothing, um, because there was the assumption that you did not vote against a nominee on the basis of philosophy or ideology, that the confirmation process was supposed to be on issues like your qualifications, your intellectual caliber, your judicial temperament. Can you put your finger on any moment where that changed? Because now it seems it's taken for granted that all of these votes are going to be either on strict party line votes or very close to party line votes. Uh, so this morning, Susan Collins says she's going to vote for KBJ. I think that it's reasonable to think that maybe Lisa Murkowski, maybe Mitt Romney will as well. But beyond that, every Republican is going to vote against her. Every Democrat will vote for her. So is there any moment where you put your finger on and you go, that's where everybody decided that the confirmation process was all about ideology and philosophy, not just qualifications. What's the old saying about going bankrupt? It, it happens very slowly <laughs> and then all at once. That's kind of how this feels. Well, that's I mean, a it great does, answer. Don't that's think. good. That's really good. Okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> just end the podcast here. Thanks, Charlie. Yeah. Great to be here. Yeah. But, um, but so obviously the last few years seem especially brutal. It wasn't going to change with this nominee, but it has changed with the last few nominees. And so that's exacerbated things. But what we've seen over the years is just a long change. I think in the political party's view of this issue, you said 40 years ago, the, the judicial nominations would get a lot of deference from the Senate. Scalia was confirmed 98 nothing, And I think the other two were Republicans who just didn't even bother to come to vote since it was, it was unanimous. Uh, one of them might have even been Barry Goldwater. Hmm. But since then, we've seen the parties polarize over 
the the role of the court and the and the way that judges ought to do their work. And I I find I'm very happily on one side of that polarization. I'm a textualist and an originalist, and I think it's a good thing that that's become a big political issue, and and the, the Republican Party rallied around that. I, I believe in that. Yeah. But what it means though is is now in an era where the parties really think hard, or at least talk a lot about judicial. Uh, ideology and they've polarized over it, you'll never, ever, ever get again a, a time when you'll get overwhelming confirmations. Uh, Senator Sass, who I quite like, in a different era, he might well have voted for a Democratic president's nominee back when the stakes were lower. Um, but now that this is, issue is front and center, it's impossible for yeah. him or any other senator to defer. And, and I don't blame them for for voting the way they do generally. And I, by the way, I thought his questions were great at the hearing. I, I, I think um, at the end of the day, you have to take seriously the, the central role of the court in our political process, both for better and for worse. So I mean, I, I've done this before on the podcast, but going back to your point about it, you know, it, it happens gradually and then all at once. You know, I, I look back at the 1970s and the 1980s and the 1990s as periods we thought were incredibly politically divisive, right? I mean, you know, the 70s, everything was was still burning. The 80s, the Reagan years in the 90s, we had the impeachment of Bill Clinton. And yet John Paul Stevens in 1975 confirmed 98 to nothing. Sandra Day O'Connor in 81, 99 to nothing. Antonin Scalia, 98 to nothing. Anthony Kennedy, 97 to nothing. David Souter, 90 to nine. Now, Clarence Thomas was much closer because of the Anita Hill issue, but Ruth Bader Ginsburg, most liberal member of the court, 96 to three. Stephen Breyer, 87 to nine. John Roberts, now we're into 2005, 78 to 22. Mm-hmm. Then you start to see kind of doubts about this. Samuel Alito, only 58 votes. Sonia Sotomayor got 68. Kagan got 63. But the majority of Republicans now were voting against Sotomayor and Kagan. And then by the time you get to Trump, it's pretty much all over in terms of partisanship. So it was coming at one time. It was within our memory these things were not that closely divided. So I think I think your characterization is correct. So I want to ask you about one other thing, because I know that you've been working on the whole question. And we were talking about the, you know, what we learned about uh, Ted Cruz and what we've learned about John Eastman and then the pressure on Mike Pence. Uh, I, I want to get your thoughts on reforming the Electoral Count Act, which has not gotten a lot of attention lately. There have been a lot of other things going on. You are working with a team to promote reforming the Electoral Count Act to prevent the kinds of things that almost happened on January 6th. What do you think needs to be done and what are the prospects for actual real reform? Before I say anything, uh, full disclosure, you know, I, I'm working with a team and it's, it's a team of, it's called the American Unity Fund. It's a center-right coalition. So this is, I, I am a consultant on this, but but I very much agree with what we're doing. I mean, we saw what happened after January, on January 6th, just the debates about things that had never been debated before, right? The role of the vice president and, and more. Um, but it caused me, before I joined the project, to take a step back and try to think, well, what is it that we're doing here with the Electoral College and Congress? What's the whole point of it? And last the fall before the election, or the summer before the election, I did a sort of a months-long reading group with young people at AEI on the history of the Electoral College. One of my big takeaways, even before January 6th, is you know we take for granted that, that the states administer the elections, and then at the end, Congress counts the votes. Um, but it is really a unified federal process, and it's a, it's, there's nothing else like it in our constitutional government, where the Constitution itself makes the states responsible for this central part of federal administration. 
uh, a process that begins with the states, ends in Congress, and the kind of transmission belt in between it, through this now more than a century old statute, Electoral Count Act, is the state executives. And we never really had to think hard, at least not in the way we do now, about the role of the state legislatures, the state executive, and Congress, and, and how they all fit together in this federal process. So anyway, long story short is the reforms that this group that I'm working with, including the, the famed uh, election lawyer Ben Ginsburg and others, is focused on a few of the issues that we saw pop up. The vice president, right, making very clear that the vice president is not the single decision maker with veto power over, over state's presidential votes. And that's the lowest of low-hanging fruit. But then you get into harder questions about the process in Congress. How do you object? What are the basis for objections? You know, we propose that you need to raise the basis for objections. Instead of just one senator and one member of the House, you need maybe one-fifth of each body to sustain an objection that would actually go into two hours of debate. But I'd say that the hardest part of this has to do with the litigation that surrounds presidential elections. I mean, we've always had litigation, I suppose, but now it's becoming much more acute, much more, it's becoming much more erratic, we'll say, as people are getting bolder and bolder in the kinds of lawsuits that they'll try. And the question is, what happens next? What happens if a governor tries to just clearly nullify or play shenanigans with his state's results because he doesn't like them? And so one of the things that my colleagues and I have been looking at is a, a very limited but important role in federal courts for reviewing the decision of the state executive to certify or not to sign or not sign the federal certification of the state's election. And, and that, I think, has been the most difficult part for conservatives, including me, to kind of wrap our heads around. Is this something we want the federal courts involved in or not? I think the answer is yes, but it has to be very carefully done and limited. But the, the, the answer is either sending these issues to the federal courts or turning Congress into our, our national election board every four years. And I, I think it's clear that we don't want that either. So one last question, um, and, and I know that, that predictions are always very, very risky, but the big decision by the Supreme Court later this year is going to be on Roe versus Wade, and I think the conventional wisdom is the conservative majority is certainly contemplating the possibility of either overturning Roe versus Wade or modifying in a very significant way. And the reason I'm thinking about this this morning is we have this new NBC poll out showing public opinion is very, very strongly against overturning Roe versus Wade. So I guess the first question would be, how does electoral politics play in the minds of justices, do you think? Of course, the old adage was the Supreme Court pays attention to election results. Does that, do you think that will have any effect at all in the way the court goes about deciding how significant their revision of Roe versus Wade might be? I don't think it'll play directly into it in the way that we sort of often think, well, the justices, they read the Washington Post yeah. and New York Times, they understand the mood of the country. I think in a more nebulous way, it has an effect on some justices in the sense that there are some justices, especially the chief justice, who just for reasons having nothing to do with the polls are just temperamentally inclined towards narrower decisions with broader support among the nine justices. That was what chief justice has been saying for years, all the way back to his confirmation hearing. And I think it was for the 10th, 10th anniversary of his appointment. I did about 10,000 words for the late great weekly standard mm. trying to tease out chief justice Roberts's approach. I think my guess would be chief justice Roberts would like to see a somewhat narrower decision than an outright, um, uh, a race of Roe v. Wade. Just so the listeners know, I very much, 
would like to see Roe v. Wade go away and see these issues return to the states. I think that's been at the heart of a lot of our problems with the, uh, with the Supreme Court politics. But my sense of this case, looking at the arguments and trying to think through how different justices would approach, my sense has always been that the most likely outcome is that the Supreme Court upholds the Mississippi abortion regulation. It rolls back somewhat the most recent major Supreme Court abortion doctrine, which is Planned Parenthood versus Casey, which kind of made a bright line around the, the, the idea of the, of the unborn baby's viability outside the womb. I think the court will, will sort of walk that standard back and sustain the Mississippi statute. But they can uphold this statute, which I think limits abortion after the 15th week of pregnancy, um, without summarily renouncing Roe v. Wade. Um, and, and frankly, renouncing Roe v. Wade would involve lots of difficult questions about what happens when the mo- life of the mother is in, in jeopardy and that kind of thing. I don't think the court has to decide those issues to decide this case. And so I tend to think they won't just decide that by getting rid of Roe altogether. But the thing is, when you listen yeah. to the oral arguments, the justices themselves were clearly troubled by, by how difficult it would be to draw a line anywhere between rolling back Planned Parenthood versus Casey a little bit and rolling back Roe altogether. So I'm, I'm still keen to see how this plays out. I don't think Roe will go away altogether. Um, I think this will be the first, the first big step in that direction. But I've been wrong before, and I'll be wrong again someday. Adam White is a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, co-executive director of the Center for the Study of the Administrative State at the Antonin Scalia Law School at George Mason University and a contributor to The Bulwark. Adam, thank you so much for coming back on the podcast today. Thanks as always, Charlie. The Bulwark podcast is produced by Katie Cooper with audio production by Jonathan Siri. I'm Charlie Sykes. Thank you for listening to today's Bulwark podcast, and we'll be back tomorrow to do this all over again.